Today we begin a series of talks that we're calling Desert Places. And for those of you who can't spell very well, uh, no, we're not talking about dessert places. Uh, my wife says she remembers it. Uh, dessert, the word dessert has two S's because it always leaves you wanting more. And I thought, that's a good way to remember dessert. But no, we're not talking about d- dessert places, although we could probably could talk about dessert places in the Bible because God refers to the promised land as the land flowing with milk and honey. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what? Actually, we might do a series called dessert places next after this. This sounds like a good idea. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to, we're not talking about dessert places. In this series, we're going to be talking about some of the amazing things that God did in the desert places of the Bible. The summer of 2020 was the first time that Christina and I drove into this little town of Afreda. We had never been here before, never even heard of this place before. And we drive into town and we see the tumbleweeds rolling across the road. And we look at each other and we go, man, we are in the desert. It is dry. It is desolate. It is thirsty for water. Where's all the trees? And, and, and we, uh, in the beginning, we were like, man, this is crazy. But now, you know, we find ourselves uh, loving. We, we've been living here for over a year and coming home from across the mountains and seeing the blue skies and friendly faces. We love, we can honestly say that we love the desert. We love living in the desert. You know, the Greek word for desert that you see in the New Testament is the word eremos. And we've talked about this in the past. This word eremos, which is translated wilderness, desert, solitary place, quiet place. It's also translated lonely place. And the desert both biblically and mystically, is not so much a geographic location as it is a place in the heart. We go to the desert to face our fears. We go into the desert to find healing from our past. We go into the desert to be in special intimacy with God, just like Jesus did right after his baptism. He went into the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights. And we go into the wilderness for God to prepare ourselves for the promised land. But we come out of the desert deeply transformed and ready to do God's work. I want to ask you this morning, have you ever experienced the desert places in your life? Have you been in desert seasons before? It's those moments in life where you feel like all you're doing is waiting for something good to happen. You're waiting for the next best thing to happen. It's those seasons when your spirit feels dry and it feels weary and thirsty. How many of you have been there before? Honestly, I've been there before. People have asked me, Blake, how's your relationship with God? And I can honestly say, listen, I, I don't feel like I've been hearing from God lately. I feel like my spiritual life is just dry. It's weary. I feel like I'm in a season of, of, of stillness, of just waiting for God to speak. Those are the desert places in our life. Those are the times in life when you feel hidden and isolated. But could it be that God uses those desert place seasons to prepare us for something greater, to prepare us for something that's coming? Look at the life of Israel and what God did in the wilderness, what he did in the desert to prepare them to enter the promised land because of the mindset that they had, the the desire that they had to go back to Egypt to want the things of Egypt. And God says, no, we've got to stick this out in the desert until you are rid of that desire before you can enter the promised land. 
God moves mightily in the desert. And I think he's asking us today to fully embrace the desert places in our lives and expect him to bring the life-giving water of his Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to talk about a foundational desert place. And throughout this series, we're going to be talking about various desert places. But this one in particular is one of the most important moments in the life of God's people. It's foundational to what we believe. It's an important desert encounter. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. It is the encounter that Israel have have with God in the desert of Sinai, uh, at Mount Sinai. And to to give you some background, for those of you who aren't familiar with Moses or the history of Israel, God promised Abraham a long time before this that he would lead Abraham's descendants into this place he called the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so he asked Abraham to get up and leave this place that he was so familiar with. And he got up and he followed God and he wandered Uh, He wandered about, and God's promise to him was, I'm going to lead your descendants into the promised land. But God's people were made slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Until one day, God raises up a man named Moses to deliver his people from Egypt. And maybe you're familiar with this story. God sent 10 plagues to the Egyptians until Pharaoh agreed to to let God's people go. And then God did a miraculous work. After he led them out of Egypt, he parted the Red Sea, and Israel walked through the Red Sea to dry land, and Pharaoh chased after them with his chariots, and God caused the waves to come crashing back down, and all of Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. And then Moses leads the people into the desert, and he leads them to a place called Mount Sinai. And this is where we're going to pick it up, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 19. Are you ready? Let me hear you say, yes, I'm ready. There we go. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Here's the message God wants Moses to relay to all of his people in Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. There's a lot of up and down the mountain here for Moses. He's going back and forth. He's doing a lot of exercise here. And the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speak. Notice that he says the people will hear me speak to you. And they will hear me speaking with you and they will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. He went back down the mountain. He's getting more exercise. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. 
Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Don't come near the mountain or you'll die. Wait for the ram's horn to blast and and ready yourselves. It's the message the Lord had. And after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people again, (laughs) he consecrated them. And they washed their clothes and they said, and then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from like from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Ooh, imagine being here in this moment. Verse 19. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. God wants Israel to know, and the first thing that we, we have to recognize here in this portion of Scripture is that God wants Israel to know that although he owns the whole, the whole earth, he's going to be the most proud of Israel. He's going to be the most proud of his people. They are going to be his treasured possession. And notice that he refers to all of the kingdom of Israel, not just a select few. He refers to them all, all of his people, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is before God appointed the tribe, the tribe of Levi to serve exclusively as priests in the tabernacle. This is before that. So God's intention in the very beginning was not that just one time, not that, not that just one tribe would serve as priests, but that the whole nation would be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Well, what's so special about being a priest? The priests were the only ones who had access to the presence of God. When it resided in the tabernacle and in the temple. Only priests were allowed proximity to God. And God is telling the entire nation that his desire is for all of them to get close. I want all of you to get close. I want all of you to serve in my presence. I want all of you to approach me up the mountain. I want the entire nation of Israel to come and be holy priests. Not just the tribe of Levi. His intention from the beginning was that everybody would come close and be in his presence. But, of course, this proximity to God's presence, it has to be mediated. Because the Bible makes it clear that if a sinful person comes in contact with an all-holy God, they will die. This is before the sacrifice of Jesus. This is before his blood was shed for us. And so at the time for a person to come in contact with an all-holy God, the Bible says that your version of righteousness is like filthy rags. That you, on your best day, is not good enough. That's why Jesus came and died for us. But before Jesus died for us, God made it clear. He wants to mediate his presence. Hey, listen, I want you guys to get close, but I want you to be shielded and protected from my holiness, from my righteousness. 
So God gives Moses instructions for how to prepare the people. And they all wash their clothes. They abstain from sexual relations. They're, they're not to set foot on the mountain until they hear the ram's horn blast. Because on the third day, God is coming in the midst of a dense cloud. And so when God shows up on the third day, the Bible says that the whole mountain shook. That smoke billowed from the mountain, that there was lightning flashing, thunder rolling, that there was this trumpet blast that slowly got louder and louder. Now imagine for yourself being an Israelite the morning of the third day. You've received instructions from Moses that you are to clean yourself. You've received instructions from Moses for how to to ready yourself for the Lord, and it's the morning of the third day, and you wake up thinking today's the day. Today is the day that the creator of the earth is going to reveal himself to me. He's going to pull back the curtain. He's invited me. He says he's coming. He's coming to this mountain. And he's asking me to stand at the foot of the mountain while he comes. God is coming today. What would be going through your head? What's, what's, God, gonna, what's God look like? What's God going to sound like? What, what's his character? What's his personality like? I, you know what? He's all-knowing. I know that he's all-knowing. Is there any sin in my life that he's going to be displeased with? Oh, my goodness, am I going to die today? Is, is God going to kill me today? There's, there's stuff in my life that I know he knows about that I haven't gone, I haven't, I haven't made a sacrifice for, I haven't asked for forgiveness. What is going to happen? They were probably shaking in their boots. I'm about to meet the God of the earth today. He's going to reveal himself. And what happens next is that God speaks directly to the people at the base of Mount Sinai when he gives them the Ten Commandments. See, uh, in, a lot of our, uh, in a lot of our movies that we have and storybooks that we have, we see, mountain, or excuse me, we see Moses ascending the mountain alone where God speaks to Moses alone and he writes the Ten Commandments on a tablet and nobody else is there. But if you read the text, read the Bible, go back to Exodus 19 and 20, you'll see that God told Moses, I am going to speak to them all today. I'm going to, 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 to get so they can hear my voice. I want them to hear me speaking to you. I want them to hear my voice. And so uh, many scholars would argue that the Ten Commandments were given a separate chapter in the Bible. We have this encounter on Mount Sinai in chapter 19, and the Ten Commandments are in chapter 20. And a lot of scholars believe that it was to emphasize the Ten Commandments, to give them their own chapter. But in reality, the Ten Commandments were probably given right after Exodus 19, verse 19, where it says, As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him and began to tell Israel the Ten Commandments. Here are the ten big ones, guys. Love the Lord your God only. Have no other God before me. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. He begins to give all the Ten Commandments. We know also in Deuteronomy 9.10, this is what Moses speaks to Israel. Uh, He says to Israel in Deuteronomy 9.10, The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. See, the text is actually pretty clear that the Lord gave the Ten Commandments to all of Israel while they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. The whole nation hears God's voice as he delivers the standard to them. 
hey, I want you to come close. All of you, I want you to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I want you to have proximity to my presence. But here are the rules. Here's what you've got to do. And he gives the Ten Commandments to them, and this is their reply. If you turn with me to the next chapter, Exodus 20, verse 18. Exodus 20, verse 18 says this. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, Moses, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And from that moment on, Moses goes up the mountain by himself. And the Lord proceeds to give Moses the book of the covenant and all the laws that we read about in Leviticus and Numbers. He begins to give Moses the law. God desired to reveal himself to his people. And the invitation in the desert was to experience his presence, for everyone to experience his presence. But the people were afraid of God, and they sent Moses instead. Moses, we understand that God wants to speak to us, but listen, we're too afraid for this. Why don't you go, just go for us. You experience the presence of God for us and come back and tell us what he says. And as a result... God spoke to Moses alone because he was the only one willing to ascend the mountain. And later, God appointed the tribe of Levi to act exclusively as his priests. And only they, only the tribe of Levi, could serve in the tabernacle in the presence of God. But that wasn't God's design from the beginning. God said, the whole nation, everybody, I want you all to be a kingdom of priests. But they built a golden calf. When Moses came back down from the mountain, he saw that Aaron and the people had had built this golden calf, and they were worshiping this idol. And God became angry with Israel. In fact, he threatened to kill Israel. And Moses stayed the wrath of God by saying, God, no, you promised that you would bring them into the promised land. And what would people say if you brought them out of Egypt only to kill them in the desert? God, don't do this. And God relented and said, I will listen to you because I'm pleased with you, Moses. I hear your voice. You know, God called Moses a friend. Moses was a friend of God, is what the Bible says. Moses would meet with God face to face in the tent, and he would come out and his face would be shining because the presence of God was radiant on him. That encounter that Moses had with God was for everybody, but nobody else wanted to go up the mountain. Let's talk about two Two words, two Hebrew words in this text that are really important. The first one is the Hebrew word for lightning. It it describes this lightning and thunder at the top of the mountain. The Hebrew word for lightning is lepid, and it's unusual. The only other place that it's used in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's the Pentateuch. The only other time that this Hebrew word is seen in the Pentateuch is in Genesis 15, 17, where it refers to a torch that is passing between the animal carcasses that Abraham had cut in half. Now, this is, sounds weird, so let me break it down. Let me explain this, this story for you. In Genesis 15, God asked Abraham to bring him a sacrifice. And so Abraham gathers all these different animals that God asks him to gather. And he cuts them in half. 
and God tells Abraham in that moment, this is what's going to happen to your descendants, that they, that they will be a great nation, but they're going to be foreigners in a strange land, and they're going to be oppressed for 400 years. God tells Abraham this years and years and years before this, the, 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 before this even happened. But he tells them, for 400 years, your descendants are going to be imp- oppressed. And then God makes a promise that their oppressors will be punished and the people will walk away with great wealth to enter the promised land. And so to seal this covenant promise, Abraham sees a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass between the two halves of the animal carcass. He sees this this torch. It's this word for lightning that's used. And so in both passages, lapid, this Hebrew word, represents God's physical, although mediated presence. It's mediated in Genesis 15 by the blood of the sacrifice. And in Exodus 19, God's presence is mediated by a dense cloud, by thick smoke. And if you remember our series in the tabernacle, this is very significant. Because when God gave instructions for for Israel to build the tabernacle, his presence, God's presence resided in the tabernacle. It was in the Ark of the Covenant. But at the beginning of the ark of the at the beginning of the tabernacle was the altar of sacrifice where the blood of a sacrifice would would pay for the priest would pay for the people and it mediated God's presence for them and also we know that when the priests were about to enter the most holy place in the tabernacle they had to take the altar of incense and slip it under the curtain and allow for the altar of incense to create this dense smoke in the holy of holies before they could come in so that it would cover the ark of the covenant it would cover the presence of god so god's presence is being mediated here by this dense cloud and this blood sacrifice the second And the reason that is significant, we're going to get into that in a moment, but the second Hebrew word is is the word for to test, is the verb to test. Did you catch the paradoxical statement that Moses made to the people when they were afraid? He looks at the people when God speaks, and they're trembling, and they're afraid, and he says to them, do not be afraid. See, Moses was letting the people know that fear is the improper response to God's presence. That we aren't, we, we don't have to be, if we are God's treasured possession and we belong to him, he has called us his own, we do not have to be afraid in the presence of God. And so he looks at the people and he says, don't be afraid. But then he says this. He says, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So, the people are not to be afraid, but it's the fear of God that's going to keep them from sinning. In other words, Moses says, don't be afraid of God so you can fear God. What does that mean? And the answer to this paradox is found in the Hebrew verb to test. It's the word nush. Somebody say that with me, nush. Just N-S-A-H, nush. There's, there's this author, his name is Peter Enns. He's the author of the NIV application commentary. And he says this about this Hebrew word, to test. He says, this Hebrew verb often translated to test should not be understood in the sense of finding out how the Israelites will perform or react to something. God is not revealing himself in thunder and lightning to see as an experiment how people are going to react. He's not testing them in the sense of, I just want to see what they're going to do, Right? In other words, verse 20 can be paraphrased. Do not be afraid. God is giving you a taste of himself so that this memory will stick with you 
to keep you from sinning. This verb can actually be more accurately translated as experience. God is coming so that you can experience him. God is coming so that you can have an experience. And so Moses is saying, don't be afraid. God wants you to experience him. He wants to give you a taste of himself. And this memory of God's presence will keep you from sinning. So the people's fear is to be tempered by the fact that God is giving them this experience for a reason. The Israelites are to fear God and obey him so that the nations will one day do likewise. God said to his people, come closer so I can reveal myself to you a little. And you will see how awesome and how beautiful and how holy I am. And once you've experienced my presence, you won't want anything to do with the sin that separates us. Because you'll want to keep coming back for more. Come into my presence. Experience me. And, and, and you, won't, you won't get enough. You'll want more and more and more. If we're honest with ourselves... I think we do things that we know we shouldn't do. We sin because we truly believe that there is something better than God. There is something out there that can give me more joy than God can give me. There is something that can give me more satisfaction, more pleasure than God can give me. There is something out there that can, give, that can make me feel more peace and make me feel more accepted than God. But the truth is, is, all of those things are counterfeits to the presence of God. They're counterfeits. They're lies. They don't measure up. Once you get a taste of God's presence and the love and the joy that he offers, the acceptance and the peace, the, the satisfaction that he offers, there's no going back. And you might be thinking this morning, well, Pastor, this, this God that you're talking about, this sounds a lot like the God of the New Testament. Not the Old Testament, because the God of the Old Testament, wasn't he a little bit more angry with people? Wasn't he a little bit more irritated and impatient with people? I've, I've thought that in the past. That the God that I read about in the New Testament that's represented in the person of Jesus is a lot more loving, a lot more accepting, a lot more inviting. But the God of the Old Testament seems like he's angry and there's a lot of laws and a lot of rules and it's strict and it's ugly and I don't want anything to do with that God. That's, that's been my mindset in the past, if I'm honest. But Hebrews 13.8, it says this. It says, Jesus Christ, who is God, is the same yesterday today, and forever. God hasn't changed. His desire for an intimate relationship with us has been there from the very beginning. It has never changed, and it never will. In the very beginning, his desire was for the whole nation to be a kingdom of priests, that all of his people would be in his presence, would serve in proximity of him, that they would all have an intimate relationship with him. They were supposed to be a treasured possession, a holy nation. And in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes this. He says, but you are a chosen people. This is the New Testament. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. See, the God of the Old Testament is the same of the God, God of the New Testament. He has always desired an intimate relationship with his people. But his, that relationship had to be mediated by the person of Jesus Christ. The presence of God needed a blood sacrifice. 
And Jesus was the sacrifice on the cross that brought you and I into that intimacy with him. The presence of God. How many of you know the word says that Jesus Christ is, is, is our great intercessor? That even now he sits in heaven and he intercedes for you and I. That he mediates a relationship for us between him and his father. The altar of incense represents that intercession. It represents that prayer. And Jesus is our great intercessor who creates this cloud of prayer, this cloud of intercession that mediates a relationship between you and I and the Father. Moses wasn't concerned about, he wasn't as concerned about getting to the promised land as he was about staying in God's presence. It was his top priority. He could care less about the promised land unless God was going with him. Let's turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. This is one of my favorite parts of the book of Exodus. Exodus 33, verse 1 through 3. This is right after, uh, this is after the Lord uh, sees Israel has created a golden calf, and he's angry with them, and he threatens to kill Israel, like I said. And Moses tells him, no, God, and God says, okay, I'll listen to you. But then, but then God says this. Exodus 33, 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt. Who brought the people out of Egypt? But God says, leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. He says, I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites and Amorites and Hittites and Perizzites and Parasites and Hivites and Jebusites and Rigolites and all the, all the good, all the bad guys. And then he says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God says, I'm a God who keeps my promises. But I'm frustrated with Israel. So you take the people and you go to the promised land. But I'm afraid I'm going to destroy you along the way. So just go and I'm not going with you. And this is how Moses responds to God. In verse 15. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And that's a whole nother sermon in and of itself right there. But this idea is that Moses was given the chance to go into the promised land. And God says, I'll make it easy for you. I'll send an angel, and they'll drive out all the bad guys. You won't have to worry about it. I'll keep my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just go. I'm not going with you. And Moses said, I would rather, I would rather stay in the desert with the presence of God than go into the promised land without you. I would rather stay here if you're going to stay here, God. Don't send us from here. For Moses, it was better to be with God in the desert than in the promised land without him. Have you been asking God to follow in your plans, or are you going where God is? Where is God at work right now? He's not busy helping you build your kingdom. Oftentimes, that's our mindset. Is God, 
why don't you come alongside me? And, and I'm, I'm expecting you to help me build my kingdom. I'm expecting you to make myself great and make my, make, give me the things that I need to, to, to feel like I'm living a good life. God, why don't you come alongside my plans? But God is not busy building your kingdom. He's busy building his. Are you working alongside God or are you waiting for him to catch up to you? Come on, God, why don't you catch up to me? I got plans. I got things to do. I got places to go. And God says, I'm not going that way. Are you willing to surrender those things that you want to stay with me in my presence and ask me what I'm doing in the world around you? Ask you where I'm at work so that you can get to work with me. You can stay in my presence. Do you know why you're alive on this earth? What, what your purpose is in life? Why are you here? That's a good answer, to worship God. Is it to do something for God that he can't do himself? Does God want you to do something for him that he can't do himself? Is it, is it to give something to God that he cannot create for himself? Is it to prove to God that you are worth being created? You are worth dying for. The Bible says that Christ died for us while we were still sinners, that he loved you before you had a chance to prove yourself, so that's not the reason that you're alive. You were created because God wanted someone to love. He wanted someone to have a relationship with who would love him in return. Does God need our love? Does he need it? No. God does not need our love. He doesn't survive off of our affection. He doesn't survive off of our love. But he wants it. Because he knows that by you giving God all of your love is the only way that your life can truly flourish. It's the only way that your marriage can flourish is if you give God everything. It's the only way that your parenting will flourish if you give God everything, that your finances will flourish if you give God everything. God knows that to stay in his presence, that to come into contact with him is the only way that your life can flourish. He doesn't need your love, but he wants it because he wants the best for you. Being in a relationship with God, experiencing his presence is the reason that you exist. His presence is what we are ultimately pursuing at our church. And it is experienced in the person of the Holy Spirit, which is the fullness of God's presence. If the Holy Spirit is here this morning, then God himself is here with us. Church, I don't want to be a part of a church that God doesn't attend. I don't want to be a part of a church that God doesn't attend. And if his presence doesn't show up when we gather, then we are solely reliant on the things that we can produce ourselves, on the things that we can do ourselves. And that's not impressive to anyone at all. Without the presence, we are a pretty boring club. We're, we're, we're not so great. But with the presence, if the presence of God is here, then we are peacemakers in our relationships. We tear down strongholds of evil in our families and our marriages and our cities. We lay hands on the sick and we see them recover. If the presence of God is here, we practice forgiveness with those who hurt us. We impact nations with our prayers and through passionate praise. If the presence of God is here, we are the hands of God himself. We are the mouthpieces of God. We are the feet of Jesus. We are the body of Christ. We're the church that Jesus designed and commissioned when he was raised to life and put his presence inside every one of us. The presence of God is what makes the difference. 
It's what distinguishes the people of God from any other people on the face of the earth. And Moses knew this. Moses said, God, if you do not come with us, then what makes us so special? Why, what, what is going to distinguish us? God, your presence is the only thing that makes us different. It's not that we have more love on our own power than the rest of the earth. I know a lot of people who don't come to our church. I know a lot of people who don't know Jesus that are really loving people, really caring people. They're good people. But it's not what makes the difference. I know a lot of really happy people, but they don't have a joy that sustains them in every season through all trials. That joy comes from the Lord. I know a lot of people who are at peace with the world, and there's not a lot of conflict in their life, but they don't have the peace that they can't explain That when storms come and troubles come, they are at peace because there is a peace inside of them. The presence of God is what makes that difference. And church, I want to be a church. I want to be a people of God whose presence is the most important thing. That without the presence of God, we are no different than everybody else. It's what makes the difference. So today in the desert, I'm going to invite Mary to come up. She's going to play. In a moment, we're going to transition into baptisms. But today in the desert, God is inviting you to come closer. And you have two responses. Two things you can say to God. The first thing that you can say to God's invitation to come closer to his presence is you can say, Pastor, that's good. I'm glad you hear from God. And, and, and I receive from your encounters. You keep, going up for the, you keep going up the mountain for me, Pastor, and you tell me what God says. Pastor, thanks for bringing the word this morning. It's just what I needed to hear. Thanks for having a relationship with God, for experiencing God. Keep doing that so I can receive from you. And tell me what God says. You could do that. Or you can say, here I come, God. I want to come myself. I want to experience you myself. I want to know your presence myself. You might be saying, I know, God, if I experience your wonderful and holy presence, I might feel convicted of some things. I might be asked to change my life in some areas, to lay some things down. But my yes to you is louder than the voices of fear that is filling my mind. Those questions that we have. If I give God everything, it means that I have to fix this thing. It means I have to admit to this. And God, I don't want to be exposed like that. I'm having too much fun. I'm I'm doing the things that I want to do. God, I know that if I say yes to you, it's going to require changing things about me that I'm not ready to change. But God, I want your presence so badly that my yes to you is louder than all of those questions, than all of those fears I have. Getting closer and closer to God's presence, it happens over a lifetime. It's not a line that we cross over. Now, there's a reality here that that when you say yes to Jesus, you're filled with his spirit. You're given a new nature, and you have full access to the presence of God. But we grow into spiritual maturity. We get closer and closer to knowing and understanding God throughout a lifetime. We say yes again and again every day. And it's not so much crossing the line as much it is a journey of next steps. We take another step. We take another step. We come closer and closer. We make a decision after decision that brings us closer into God's presence. And today, we're going to watch as some people take another step closer to the mountain. We're going to have some people take a step 
closer to the mountain by saying yes to the, to the step of water baptism. Let me ask you before we go into this moment, if you would close your eyes with me and, and pray with me. What's your next step? What is God asking you to do to come close? Maybe he's asking you just to spend time in his presence every day. Maybe he's asking you to, to call or text somebody, ask for forgiveness or to reach out and forgive somebody. Maybe he's asking you to get involved with other believers, join a small group so you can learn about the Bible more. Is God asking you to start serving others regularly, to give yourself to God, to give your time and your talents to God, to start serving people? Maybe God's asking you to start giving consistently. God, is he inviting you to to tell somebody about him, to be an evangelist, to be somebody who's excited about the person of Jesus and has this joy that you can't help but share? Perhaps you need to take your first step this morning and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And that's where we start. So with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, I want to ask you in this room, if you want to say yes to the person of Jesus, and you want to begin that journey by taking steps closer and closer to the mountain, and you say, here I come, God. I want you above anything else. If that's you and you've never made that decision to receive Jesus into your life, I want to pray with you this morning. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I just want you to raise your hands high right now so I can see it and I can pray with you. Anybody in this room who wants to say yes to Jesus, just raise your hand high. Praise you, God. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you, Jesus, that you are making all things new, that everybody in this room, Lord, you promise that your mercies are new every morning, that every time we wake up, you say today is a new day and it's a new start for you. You have a chance to come closer to the mountain or to walk farther away. And Father, I pray that we would enter in, that we would come close, that this would be a place that draws people into the desert so that they can encounter your spirit. They can encounter your presence. We embrace the desert seasons of our life, Jesus. We embrace the things that you want to show us and how you want to prepare us. And we love you in your name. And the church said, Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song. And as we sing the song, just reflect on the lyrics. And as you learn the song, begin to sing it out. I'm going to go get changed and ready for baptism. And we'll be back, we'll be back in just a few moments uh, for, for baptisms.